Welcome to Composer Talk. I'm your host, Matthew Wong. As a film and TV composer, I love talking to others about their backgrounds, composition techniques, music tech, and more. We all watch films, TV, and digital media and know the important role that scoring plays in storytelling. I want to invite you to join me on this adventure to learn more about the artists who are behind the scenes creating the music. If you want to learn more about the people interviewed on this podcast, make sure to follow us on our socials. And if you enjoy Composer Talk, please take the time to rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred listening site is. Uh, This next composer has scored over 45 feature films and several network series. He's the guy behind the music of Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates, Step Up, All In, Just Friends, and is well known as the composer for HBO's Silicon Valley and Netflix's Golden Globe winning series, The Kaminsky Method. This next composer got his big break writing the music for Jerry Bruckheimer produced hit CSI Miami, and he was also named 2019 ASCAP TV Composer of the Year. And the composer is Jeff Cardoni. Wow. Thank you. How goes, Jeff? <laughs> good. Good. It's funny, they this on a random note, on that ASCAP thing, they just canceled the awards and everything for this year. So I will get an extra year oh. as reigning champ just because. <laughs> the king. He reigns. So Jeff, you grew up in D.C. And... No, I actually, I grew up in Pennsylvania. Oh, wow. I got this wrong. Yeah, yeah. No, that's okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I grew up in D.C., uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, the town where the office is for, was set. It's a dumpy town in Pennsylvania. Ah, Scranton. Yeah, horrible. Well, it's actually Wilkes-Barre, Scranton. I was in <laughs> Wilkes-Barre. They're like the same place. Okay. But yeah, it's a, it's the kind of place you dream of getting out of, <laughs> pretty much. Right. So when you were a kid, you started uh, playing piano there? Yeah, yeah. That's my whole start was piano. Begrudgingly, my parents forced me to do the whole classical thing for, for years, like like. 10 years, I think. And so, mm-hmm. uh, it's always sad to me because I see people's kids taking piano lessons now and they can sight read way better than I can sight read anymore. You know what I mean? In fact, a lot of times mm-hmm. I've been in this break, I've been playing a lot of old classical stuff and it's been fun to just kind of sit down and hack through it again. Cause you know, sight reading, you, you definitely lose your speed when you're not doing it as much. So it's been fun. But yeah, so my parents forced me to play piano for a long time. And then when I got in high school, I made a deal with them that I would keep playing if they let me get a drum set. So I got a drum set and uh, yeah, played drums in a bunch of cheesy heavy metal bands in high school and junior high school. We were actually playing in bands like in bars before I was before I was 18. You know, we used to have our parents drop us off to play gigs and stuff. So it was pretty fun. And then when I went to college, I just became obsessed with the guitar. And that was like, that was it. Oh, so you never played guitar until, until college? Until college. And I just became obsessed with a guitar. Like, obsessed. Like, just, right. you know, because it was in the days of all the, the, you know, it was like post-metal, pre-grunge, but like guitar was still like happening, you know? So it's like, you know, each, I spend way too much time learning Steve Violics and all the cheesy shredder dudes and stuff, but it was fun. It was fun. And, and, you know, and then I was, you know, big like indie rock kind of person. And so, yeah, so it was great guitar. I, I miss guitar being so prominent in the world. Yeah. I mean, I feel like up until mid two thousands, it was still like the defining instrument of pop music with, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's, it's such a great instrument and it's just, yeah, I feel like 
I feel like, you know, synths are great and they have their place, but I just feel like there's so much more uh, humanity that you can get from a guitar and someone that can play. And it's just, it can do so many different things. So yeah, it's cool. I mean, for me, I still use it every day. So it's not like it's changed for me that much, but uh, I do miss it in pop music for sure. That being said, I feel like a lot of it became just stale and repetitive in pop music too. So maybe it's good to kind of, it'll get reinvented in some way, you know? Yeah. I think the last great guitar riff that made me just want to like go pick up a guitar and learn the riff immediately was probably Get Lucky. Oh, right, right. Yeah. 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 You got to rediscover all his old stuff. I mean, that dude played on everything. Oh, of course. I just saw him live last year in West Hollywood and it was the craziest. He's like thing. a metronome. I mean, he just is just like, tick, 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 tick. I mean, it's awesome. Yeah. I mean, he's just so consistent with his playing. Exactly. And he's never, or sometimes he's not even like right on the beat, but he's just, he's so just got the feel. Yeah. Slightly yeah. off. But then you go back and you realize how many songs that he played on or produced or, you know, like you just never realize his imprint is so massive, you know? Way before I get lucky. Right. But it's, yeah, it's a great tune. It's a great tune. It's a great tune. <laughs> of course. Yeah. It's not like get lucky. <laughs> no, but it's great. So did you want to be like a lead guitar player in bands uh, after just like discovering this love in college? Because I know you yeah. played an alien crime syndicate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, when I got out of school, I moved to DC right after because I just wanted to, I, I had played in bands in college, played guitar. Like I was obsessed. Uh, so then I was like, I want to go and get in the band. I want to get signed. You know, that was the thing back then. And so I moved to DC, uh, just cause it was close. It was the closest big city. I didn't want to live in New York at that point. And, um, I, their version of the, uh, LA weekly was called the DC city paper. And, uh, the week I got there, I went through the back trying to find bands and I found an ad that said, uh, looking for guitarist tr- to throw his life away in pursuit of rock and roll dream. And I went to the black cat that night and, uh, I met these dudes who, who ended up becoming like my best friends and we moved out to here. I met them in DC. So, uh-huh. yeah. What was the DC music scene like then? Uh, it was great. It was great. But, you know, there was the whole, oh, you work for Craig, but the whole, you know, the whole punk, the, the you know, the Discord records and the, the punk scene was really, really big, you know, and my band was pop punk, but probably not punk enough to be taken. Ser- I mean, you know, these people are no joke, the whole Fugazi and all. there was just a whole scene of the super indie and it was great. And, you know, and we all played the same clubs and the Black Cat and things like that. But my band, I don't think we ever got respected as much. We were never quite welcomed into that scene because we kind of were like a little bit punk, but not punk enough to be full on, you know. So like there's a, the, the K-Rock of DC was called uh, HFS and uh, we won the song of the year on HFS. But it was like too poppy. Wow. It was cool. But but. I don't know. My my whole band career was always like just one step away from the, you know, like we, you know, we would, we toured a lot. Like when we lived in DC, this was like 94, 95, you know, and when indie rock was really great and you could live on the East coast and, and travel from Boston to all the way down to Atlanta. And so, so we used to, we used to play like 20 shows a month, self-booked release CDs and 
you know, trying to get signed. We'd go to New York once every month or once every two months. You'd play your showcases. We'd play Maxwell's or Under Acme or I can't, Brownies. I, I can't remember some of them, but it was awesome. I mean, it was a great time to be in a band. It was just fun, you know. But then we were about to get signed and blah, 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 blah. And our singer decided to go to grad school and bailed out. So then the rest of us, we had a manager who was a manager out here who was in L.A., uh, who actually is now a big music supervisor, um, this guy, John Holohan. So he's like, you should come to L.A. So we came to L.A. And then he worked at what what was then, uh, what is now Soundtrack Music Associates, the composer agency. So back then uh, they had music supervisors. And, uh, and so when we got to town, his brother, John's brother, Pat, was our bass player. And uh, so we got to town and he went to work at SMA for, for John as an assistant. He was gonna go be a music supervisor and uh, I was gonna go try to become a composer. And we just kind of, Mm-hmm. Uh, but as that was going on, I was I did the whole Barry Squire uh, hired gun guitar player thing, and uh, I got I hooked up with this band Alien Crime Syndicate, who had a deal on um, V two Records, Warner Brothers, something like an offshoot of Warner Brothers. So I got hired as like a you know trained monkey uh, lead guitarist for hire, and uh, we we played a bunch of shows. They you know we we did north by northwest and all that stuff we were playing all over the place but it it wasn't fulfilling to me because i didn't write the songs you know so it was just Mm. you you know it was just playing had you written a lot of music in college or before that point too yeah yeah i mean i had well back then we had our four tracks and our eight tracks and my little zoom guitar thing and yeah i just didn't know what to do with it you know uh i used to write like Mm -hmm instrumental guitar music you know kind of i don't know it was some of it was pretty terrible but i just love the idea i mean i remember when the band broke up i remember being in my car i was driving from new york to dc and just being like you know kind of soul searching and figuring out what i wanted to do with my life because i was just crushed you know and uh, i was just like all i want to do is find a way to be able to sit in the studio all day and make a living being able to make music you know and I didn't really realize it at that time that that was like, oh, well, I was sitting here, you know, a few days ago thinking like, oh, shit, it, I'm actually doing what I wanted to do, you know. And I, obviously, so many things I wanted to happen have not happened and may not happen. But still, you know, all things considered, it's still the fact that any of us can be here writing music and making a living doing it right. is pretty, pretty awesome, you know, so... I found an old message to myself. There's this website called futureme.org where you can send yourself an email into the future. Oh, wow. And from when I was at Berkeley five week, just like the summer program, I got an email from that version of me saying how the dream is to be a guitar player in LA. And I guess that's kind of true. I did that even though in a very different way that I would have imagined. Well, exactly. That's the thing. Like life is strange, you know? I mean... If I've learned anything, it's like just to kind of all those master plans that we all had and very few of us, it's a straight line for me to be, you know, for most of us, there's just unexpected turns and one chance encounter or one failure will open the door to something else happening, you know, and it's like, so I try to keep that in perspective sometimes because, 
you know, it's always, it's easy to get bummed out and disappointed and, and frustrated by this business, even when we're in it and seemingly on the outside doing well, but we're all, you know, we all want other things. We all want that next step on the ladder. And we all, you know, even for the best of us, I assume that there's still a lot of rejection and frustration for everyone. So that's just part of the game. But So when you came out to LA, I know you were kind of looking for composer assistantships um, and like, and then you sat down with John at, at Soundtrack Music Associates and he gave you some advice. I was just curious what that advice was. Hmm. I'm trying to remember the exact words. Well, John, John Houlihan also set me up with uh, John Tempero, who is an agent there, who's a, who's a great guy. He's still an agent there. But he's just like, you know, you got to have, you got to have heat. That's the key in this business. You need to have heat. And I'm like, how does one get heat? <laughs> You know, it's like, it's such a catch 22 because you want to get something that's going to give you the heat, but you can't get the heat without the heat, you know, like, so it, it, I, I get it. It makes sense. I mean, it's, it's a lot of it's Hollywood bullshit and Hollywood bullshit is we're here. It happens all the time. You know, I mean, there's so many factors as far as how we're judged that, that just goes so far beyond music. You know, I mean, music, I would venture to say, I don't think music is in the conversation of a lot of the things that are said about us in uh, at least half the times, you know, like you're judged from what you've worked on or what band you're in or who, you know, or who, you know, more than the music itself. I, I think in a lot of cases. Right. So if a show you worked on is a comedy, even though it's a drama score, they'll just say, Oh, he's a comedy guy. Oh yeah. I deal with this <laughs> constantly. This is the bane of my existence. But, uh, uh, but again, it's, it's better to be someone to know something about you than nothing. But uh, yeah, honestly, I, going back to John, I can't remember what he said, but it, it, it was really like, you just got to go out and find your own way. You know, like uh, I, I guess naively all of us think that you're going to meet someone who's going to just kind of show you this golden path that you need to follow. But at the end of the day, I think if you talk to 10 people, everyone has a different path, you know, you know, I mean, I wasn't fortunate enough to be uh, in like a band that was well known enough that I was able to get score to transfer the scoring from that, you know, which which is good and it was bad, you know. Um, but it is what it is, so you can't you can't bitch about it. You just got to find another way, you know. I mean, surely some people things happen easier for them, you know, but that's okay. Nothing good is easy, you know. Nothing worth fighting for is easy, and I think that. If anything, it's just when one door closes, it just means you're one step closer to a door opening. You know what I mean? But but yeah. so going back to the beginning, like I had I came out of wanting to be a composer and having no idea how to be a composer or who to talk to. Or, you know, I came out to L.A. Besides John, I knew no one. You know, I didn't have anyone in the business. I didn't know anyone. So. Uh, that makes it hard. You know, I mean, there's people well more, way more connected than I surely was. So it, I, I, I was just like, okay, what do I do? What do I do? So I was just like, well, I think I want to be a composer, but I really don't have a lot of music. You know, I mean, that's step number one. That's the only thing we can control is the music. You know, I think a lot of people 
want to market themselves and and talk about how good they are but they really don't in the beginning spend enough time on the thing that you're trying to sell which is the music more than anything so I, I i realized that that was the only thing that i can do so i just started trying like force myself to write every day and to learn and to listen and to and then i took some classes at, at ucla i took like conducting and uh, a couple film music classes and they were cool i mean getting to use that was the first time because i didn't go to berkeley i didn't get to use live ensembles before ucla and that so that was good that was a good experience but um you know, if I can go back in history uh, to when I was 21 or something, I would have I'd be like, go to Berkeley, probably, and then come out and try to assist the big A-list dude, you know. Um, but I never had that experience. So my path, for whatever reason, just didn't go that way. Right. Well, it's funny that a lot of people assume if you do the composer assistantship that you just stick it out, you do a great job, and then someone hands you work. Right. Uh, but that doesn't happen for a lot of people. I, I, mean, I agree 100%. Yeah. Um, I think, no, you're totally true. And you know this more than anyone. But but I still think there's a lot to be learned from it, even if it doesn't lead to a job. But it, just being able to see how it works and being able to make mistakes on someone else's watch, on someone else, with someone else's name at stake is, is invaluable. You know? Right. I, I used to work... I, I only worked for two composers and for a very short time. But, like, I worked for... A friend of mine, this guy, John Murphy, who did 28 Days Later and stuff. And, and I helped him on some stuff, but we're more like friends than me being his assistant. But that was a cool experience. Uh, and then I, before that, I worked for this guy, Chris Ting, um, who did Futurama. Um, and that, it wasn't the best experience for me, but I got to see uh, using an orchestra on a TV show, which is so rare. And I got to write some cues for that, which was cool. But I, I, I could never believe... It, working for Chris was that, you know, I'm so like uh, type A about like schedule and, and staying ahead of the game and stuff. But like it would be the night before they had a show. I'm like, dude, are you going to write? And he hadn't written a cue yet. He'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it later. And I'm, like, I'm, then I'm like, like, but what about like the orchestrator and everything? Like, when are they going to get the stuff? He's like, oh, they'll get it four in the morning, whatever. I'm like. I could never do that to people. I'm like, I, like if I have to make my mixer work on a Saturday, I feel guilty. Like I so or, or at night, like I'm so. And this is just me, but I'm so worried about like I don't want to be that dick guy, that slave driver who just doesn't take into account anyone else's well being. So I, I really try to be aware of that. But yeah, like we would be, I'd be up at four in the morning getting cues to do for, for, and I was just like, wow. But it was, it was awesome because it was like trial by fire. It was like, damn. And back then you had to like fax things too. So you'd have to fax your sketch to the orchestrator. So I can only imagine the poor dudes getting this stuff at four or five in the morning, like, right. and having to turn it into real music. Yeah. I'm sure with that type or that very tight deadline that none of it was coming in perfect too. <laughs> so yeah, 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 yeah. Oh my God, that was the worst job for them. But uh, but that was that was good. That was a good experience. It didn't last very long, but... So I think you said that you spent three years in LA before, I don't know, getting frustrated with everything, but before CSI, right? Yeah, more actually more. Yeah, I got here uh, December of 97, yeah. So, and CSI came about in 2003. So like I was here a oh. good five years and, you know, I had, I just did a bunch of 
shitty short films. Like it, back in those days, it was like pre-internet being what it is today. So like I would go to like AFI and put posters on the board, on the wall, like little things like composer will do your film and like all kinds of crazy stuff like that. Just trying to meet anyone and anyone, you know. I've thought about doing that too, actually. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I actually did a couple. But I mean, shorts are tough because yeah. I've never seen a short lead to anything for anyone. <laughs> but but I say that, but then there are a couple people that, that worked on a college thing and it made their whole career, you know. I mean, look at Ludwig. Yeah. So, right. uh, <laughs> yeah, amongst others. But, you know, like, but that doesn't happen for everyone, you know. Or, or you do something for someone and then they get bigger and then they... they don't bring it along. That's happened to me many times, but whatever. But yeah, so like I was, I, I did short films, uh, a, a lot of them. Um, I I did a couple like Discovery Channel-ish kind of like hour documentary things. Like I, I did one about sharks and I did one about like, like whatever, basically whatever I can do. And yeah, I did a couple. How did those types of things come about? Um... I'm trying to remember. I somehow I met someone who worked at this company called uh, World of Wonder, who did like a lot of reality stuff, like um, this guy Fenton and Randy, who are like now they're like the kings of like LGBT, all kinds of like they 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 do tons of reality stuff. But the, I somehow got a meeting with them, and they they let me they gave me a couple like one hour things. I think I had done one for USA. I had a friend of a friend who I somehow got hooked up on this USA one, and it's like an hour documentaryist thing, uh, and I think it paid like five grand, which then was like hitting the friggin' lottery, you know, like five grand in one place was like, wow. Because uh, that you know back then when you know when you're living single, that's that's like. Three, three months of living. So that was, I got a couple of them. And then, so I got a meeting at World of Wonder and I did a, a few of their things. Um, but still, it wasn't going anywhere fast. You know, it was just little drips and drabs. Um, and I was like, honestly, about to hang it up because I, I was, didn't have any money and I didn't know what to do. And so, uh, but then a couple fluky things happened and I got CSI Miami, which was, a lifeline that changed everything. Right. Yeah. I mean, you said you maxed out a credit card to afford the studio. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Like, so a friend was a music supervisor on that show, my buddy, Jason uh, Alexander, and they had an office in Santa Monica uh, and adjoining their office was a, a studio. And he's like, you should, you should move in. You should try to move in a studio, you know, it'd be good for you, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, so yeah, I was dead broke. So I, I, you know, used to get those credit card things in the mail and I got maxed out a couple of credit cards and, uh, I bought myself a few months over there. So it was like, it was like the end, man. It was like all hands on deck, man. It was like it's, something was going to happen or I, I was going to go down fighting, you know? Uh, but anyway, so, so I ended up moving into that studio. I split it with another dude and, uh, a few months into it, they came over and asked if I wanted to do a short film. Uh, the one of the cameramen on CSI was doing a short film, and they, I did it. And uh, through that, I met Danny Cannon, who is an EP. He directed all the CSI, the pilots for all of them. And then while that was going on, Graham Ravel was doing the first season, um, and I guess they let Graham Ravel go. 
And so they were looking and then they came in and said, do you want to take a shot at demoing on this? I'm like, you know, they're not going to go from Graham Ravel to who the hell is this guy, <laughs> you know, but, but, but I got to demo an episode, uh, on a weekend and I just got lucky. And for some reason they picked my tape that was VHS tapes that they watched. And I think that, I think they watched them without names first or something, which, which never happens, you know, right. and I just, it was a lucky break. So that was, you know, but that was a life changer for me, you know, too. And that was fun. Uh, and then through a whole other uh, chain of events, I ended up splitting them with Kevin Kiner, who's become a great friend of mine. And we just had the best time for 10 years, you know. And I had never really worked with anyone before that way. Or, and, you know, and I, I know my instinct at the beginning was like, you know, screw that. I want this. I got this. I want to do this myself. You know, this is my thing. But in hindsight, I, I don't exactly remember what happened, but I, I called him and I said, do you want to team up? Because Kevin was, you know, a mel more well-known entity than me and they knew him. So in hindsight, it was the smartest thing I ever did because it, you know, 50% of a lot is better than 100% of nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. So, so anyway, so that was... And I'm sure it was also helpful too to like learn from another composer. Yeah. No, it was great. It was a great experience. I'll, I'll, I mean, it's, a, it's like an experience that doesn't come around very often in life, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and especially because, you know, after all nine seasons, to, you know, it's like a family, you know, I mean, and that's, I miss that. I miss a lot of the people and stuff. It was just, it was just a great time. So, but that was, yeah, that got me in the game, I guess. Right. Well, on that, you mentioned that there was a bit of a blind audition and that they didn't look at names for the first round. Yeah. Why do you think more people don't do that? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> because I think people want to see the names, you know? I, if you make a choice on someone who's whatever name it is, but it's a acceptable level of name, you're not going to get fired, you know? If you hire Hans on a movie and it doesn't work out, you're not going to get fired for hiring Hans. But if you take a chance on some unknown entity and it doesn't work out, you know, I think there's probably just a lot more pressure. Um, for some people, you know, some people don't care. You know, there's some producers who are just, they want what they want and they want to find the right thing and, and they'll fight for you. But the, I find those are few, few and far between, you know? Yeah. It's a funny thing. Cause I get it with actors and producers and names like that, but I don't think I've ever heard of a movie where the composer sold more movie tickets. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, for as many incredible composers who are super successful, I bet if you went up to someone on the street, maybe half would know who John Williams is. Maybe, you know, or Hans and maybe Danny Elfman. A few, you know what I mean? But like, it's not like, yeah, anyone cares. Joe, you know, Joe movie, Moviegoer does not care who scored this movie. But, but, right. but yeah. But again, I think it's just the comfort factor, you know? And if, if you're this A-list person who has worked on this and this and this, there's just like, you've earned the right to kind of be in that conversation, you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess from there then, I mean, you've worked on so many incredible projects. Oh. Um, I don't feel that way, but thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Silicon Valley was just like one of my favorite shows. Um, I mean, that's... Kaminsky uh, method? Come yeah, on. Yeah, Kaminsky's bit was fun. That was unexpected, and that was that was a great surprise. Because, I I mean, to go back to, to Silicon Valley, so like, that was 
unexpected to get that one. And I, I didn't know when I got it that it was going to turn into what it did, you know, but it's, mm-hmm. it's been a double-edged sword for me too, because prior to that, I was a guy who did CSI Miami and all this other crap. But, but like after Silicon Valley, then I, I, a lot of calls we started getting were from comedies, you know, and I never saw myself as mm-hmm. a comedy guy or as the, you know, like it was just one thing I did, but, but a lot of people started equating Silicon Valley with comedy and that's, and I'm like, did you ever listen? Like there's no co- comedy music in Silicon Valley right. at all, but no, the scores have been more dramatic yeah, than anything. Yeah, I mean, it's totally a yeah. thriller. Uh, yeah. But especially as it, maybe the first season was a little more comedic, not the music, but there just wasn't as much music in the first season. But after that, it would be like we'd sit there and watch it. There'd be nothing. And Mike would go, you know, this seems like a pretty tense moment or this, you know. And, and then I started doing a lot of the like more emotional stuff, which none of that stuff was scored originally in the, in the first few episodes. And they started liking it. And then it just started becoming a thing. And then so the music that I was doing became all, there was nothing funny, nothing comedic. You know, there were, you know, quite a handful of songs in every episode that covered a lot of those song spots. So then we just played the the tension and the ticking clock and the more heartfelt things. Um, so, yeah. So if you listen to it, if that was, show was some thriller thing, then it would be fine. But like I got calls for Silicon Valley because it was a funny show. And then, but right. then. Well, if it was a thriller, when you I mean, it's very possible. Like, if you only started getting calls for thrillers, then you'd be wanting to do just. Very true. Very true. Uh, Like I said, I don't think any of us are ever happy with where we are. Or there's always things that we we want. Um, And there's a reason Brian Tyler went from Fast and Furious to Crazy Rich Asians, or Junkie Excel's gone from whatever action movies to Sonic the Hedgehog and Scooby Doo. Yeah. Yeah, true. You know, I hear I hear mutterings that like, yeah, those guys are like, if I have to do another freaking action cue, I'm going to shoot myself, you know? So, you know, I, yeah, we all have our, our crosses to bear. So, yeah. And, and it, again, it goes back to gratitude for anything, you know, be happy for what we have than to just bitch about it. Because it's easy to take it for granted when you have it. But surely if I right. didn't do Silicon Valley or if I didn't do whatever thing... I'd probably wish that I had because far more good comes out of it than bad. Yeah. You know? And what would be the, hmm? oh, I was just going to ask you what type of genre of movie do you want to work on next then? Or what type of stories do you want to be working well, on? Well, I'm a, all I watch is drama. All I want is drama, you know, I mean, but in a realistic way for me, we've been trying to find kind of like a quirky drama quirky that might have elements of comedy with drama you know to kind of i can't go from here to here in one move i don't think so i have to plot a couple moves to kind of slowly move the needle that way you know so you know uh, kaminsky method was a good step in the right direction that way as far as more dramatic elements more serious elements i you know i mean i think we all want to work on things that are like respected you know what I mean? And sadly, I think you get respected if the thing you're working on is respected more than what you do. You know, I mean, yeah. I have some scores I did for some indie movies that I thought were the best things I ever did, but nobody cares, you know. Uh, but but yeah, I'd like to do a drama. I'd like to be, uh, you know, a poor man's, you know, John Bryan meets 
Alexander Desplat, you know, just small ensemble, cool dramas that you get to use uh, live players on. That would be my dream scenario. Right. But nice. who knows? Well, it's, it seems you're making the right moves towards that, that goal. We'll see. But as much as you can't control a lot of this, it's interesting that just putting whatever it is that you want out there in the world can really help guide where you end up. I hope. Yeah, it gets hard. I mean, it gets harder the longer you've been doing this, you know, because let's be honest, like you're a young dude who's just getting going in this thing. Like you might meet some 25 year old filmmaker who, you know, makes something that really you can bypass all of us <laughs> that have been doing this for a long time, you know, with one move. Whereas, you know, when you've been in the game longer, you have much more baggage. You know, people look at your credits and be like, oh, he did this, this, this and this. He's wrong because of this. He's wrong. because You know what I mean? Like, but when you're a blank slate, you might be judged a little more purely or a little more. Here's this new talent that we don't know anything about yet, you know? And in a lot of ways, that's, 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 that's how Hollywood works. You know, I can't rebrand. Yeah, my... But at the same time, I mean, I mean, the thing that you have, or just any composer who's been in the game longer has is the track record of, I delivered the music for this sure. project. I did it on time. I did it on budget. And if you're a newer person coming in, like, why would anyone want to spend, or why would anyone even risk that? Which we kind of talked about yeah. a bit earlier. Yeah, it, it, it's true. Um, I, I think the danger for some of us who have been in, in it for a while is you always kind of want to be doing new, hip, cutting-edge stuff. You know, I'm not saying I'll never work again, but I don't want to do broad sitcoms for the rest of my days doing, you know what I mean? So it's like we got to plot some moves to try to get that hip indie cool factor, which is so elusive. It's the hardest thing to do because you can't sit here. We all have the same instruments and sounds and programs, you know, like so. But you can't create that cachet that comes along with working on something hip, you know. So that's why I spend half my time and I say it to my agent all the time. It's like I want to find new young filmmakers because Otherwise, I'm going to be doing broad mainstream shit that, you know, it's fine, but but that's not, I, I still feel like I have more to do creatively and you got to find the hip projects to be able to do that on. So I'm like, I don't care about money, you know, I want to find some new, some, you know, indie drama that pays nothing that might be a relationship that can turn into something or ability to write some cool music that you can't write on something that, you know what I mean? Um, because I think as things become more right. commercial, you know, like there's the really broad commercial version of, you know, you can go do Hallmark Channel. Like I, I like doing romantic comedy stuff sometimes. I like doing I like doing stuff for the heart, you know, but I don't want to necessarily do a Hallmark movie or something like that. That's super. Well, you might get creatively be able to do that. It's just not going to do anything for me at this point. You know what I mean? So there's a. Mm. I don't know. There's all, I mean, we all have choices, but a, a lot of times we think we have choices, but we don't really have choices. Like it's easy to look back and say, oh God, five years ago, if I didn't do this, if I did this, but at that moment, that wasn't even an option. You know what I mean? Um, it's right. easy to look back and, and, but. Yeah. It's a tricky thing too. Cause I imagine a young up and coming filmmaker who might actually love your music might be intimidated just by the fact you've worked on big things right. already. Maybe which is and, ridiculous. 
but yeah, you, you, you may be right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I hear, I, I, I've got a friend who's an agent, uh, another composer agent, not mine. Uh, and he's like, yeah, dude, I was yeah. out talking on this movie. Like in the last three weeks, your name came up on like four movies. Like they had you tempt in there. I'm like, what the fuck? Nobody called me about it. Why didn't they call me? <laughs> so it's just weird. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, well, that's great. But someone else is getting the gig. So it's weird. Huh. Yeah. So to, to your point, though. Yeah. Someone might not think that they can approach someone, but they surely right. can. <laughs> yeah. I always just tried talking to new faces and and it's easy for someone to just not reply to an email and then yeah, just move on. Yeah, the yeah. yeah. It's just a strange thing to figure out. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an evolving, evolving thing. Cause you always want to feel like you're progressing. You always want to feel like you're moving forward. You're, you're creatively doing something new. I mean, I never got into this to make money. I didn't know you can make money as a composer. I didn't never really, that was never part of the equation, like, which is good. Cause I, 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 I think I would have made different choices if it was because of money. But like I said, back yeah. to that 20 years ago, sitting in my car driving from New York, it was like, I didn't say I want to make a lot of money and be able to sit in a room all day. I just want to be able to somehow support myself and sit in the studio and be able to make music. You know, that's all I ever wanted to do. Um, because I think when money becomes involved, it changes things for a lot of people. And that th it doesn't cross my mind that way because I think it blinds you. I think it makes you make choices for the wrong reasons. You know, I mean, obviously we all have to eat and, and pay our bills, but I'm glad I never got, I never solely based choices on on money because I think that it it it's almost the polar opposite of creativity in a lot of ways. Yeah, one of my agent's clients was complaining that they wanted the highest paid blockbuster movies but then they also wanted Academy Award nominations and the two didn't seem to, to right. line up. <laughs> so they, they decided to pick the movies that oh. did incredibly well. But <laughs> Yeah, I yeah. mean, I don't think many of us have that choice to make. But yeah, I mean, it goes to your point about being satisfied or happy because yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure the biggest A-list person you can name is probably pissed off because someone got an Oscar nom for this little indie movie that, you know what I mean? So... Who knows? Yeah, it's such an interesting. It's a constantly evolving thing. The, yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think we get somewhere where you're ever comfortable with it, with where you are or what you want or how things are swinging for you. Because uh, I think it definitely goes in phases too. I think everyone kind of catches heat for a while, catches a wave for a while, and then it just feels like you're dead in the water. And then just when you think you're dead in the water, you catch another turn. So you just got to stay swimming. Mm -hmm. Just got to stay afloat. Yeah. yeah. Just got to stay in the game. I mean, the best advice I think I've ever gotten in music was just to stay in it because a majority of people yeah. will drop out because it's really difficult. And if you want to make money, there's so many other better ways to make yeah. money for the amount of hours worked than music, whether it's playing in bands or composing. Yeah. But as soon as you decide I'm not going to do this anymore, that's when all those opportunities go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're not here, then you have a zero chance of getting of something happening. You know, even if you're here, right. you might have a two percent chance or whatever. But, you know, like there's no way to, to reduce your odds and to give up, you know, so it's hard. Yeah. Well, on, on the topic of comfort and to put in a slightly <laughs> more positive uh, area, <laughs> we're going to switch over to the last segment for this podcast, which is Tech right. Talk a segment where I list off a tech topic and you say as much or as little as you want about it. I am the worst person for tech talk. 
<laughs> I am the, I am a tech idiot. You're talking to someone who runs one machine and like, yeah, but okay, let's go. Bring it. Cool. Well, the first one we got here is DAW. D digital digital audio workstation. Use. I know that. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, I'm not quizzing you. I'm just asking logic. what you <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, logic. I love logic. Uh, what do you think about the guitar viol? I, I love it more than anything else. Uh, yeah, it's the best thing I ever bought. Yeah. I bought, I, I was one of the early guys who had the electric one. I had the, the first generation electric one. Uh, and I didn't love that as much. Like I played it, it, you know, if you throw a ton of effects and stuff, it sounds cool. But when I bought the acoustic one a few years ago, that was a life changer for me. That was like the best thing I ever bought. I love mm -hmm. it so much. In fact, like I was so scared of it getting stolen out of my studio. I'd literally take it in my bedroom every night. <laughs> Yeah, because it takes so long to get it. Like if, God, if like someone stole it, I have to freaking wait for six months. Or, uh, but I, it's the because I I play it a lot. Finger I do a lot of like uh, you know I use it on Kaminsky a lot. I use it to fake cello and stuff. So I'll do a lot of bowed stuff, but I'll do a lot of pizzicato as well. Instead of using sample pizzicato, mm -hmm. I'll just do it on there. Uh, it's great. It's the best thing I ever bought. Did you uh, discover them because of Tyler Bates uh, or Kevin Kleiner before actually. that? He got one in the, right oh, around yeah. the time Tyler got his. Kevin was one of the first guys who got it as well. And nice, it's crazy how it's. I know. Or uh, sales uh, off. Film yeah, composers. yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, you can't even talk about it with with saying yes. Tyler was the first person to use it. All credit due to Tyler. Yeah, I mean, it's all. But no, it's great. I mean, it's really just such a creative. I use it so much. Like, I don't know what I would do without it. Because I use it, I'm doing this cop show now too, and it's like I use it every day just to like, you put it through a bunch of effects and just it's just I I I'm not a big like synthy person. I'm not like I I got to have something real on every track I do. So I, like I'm always play like every you know this thriller show. It's just every cue. There's like two passes of guitar viol, one pass of ebo. Just I, I got to have real things on there because I feel like. Otherwise, if it's just all samples that we sound just like everyone else, because everyone else has the same samples, you know, so. Yeah. Right. Very true. Uh, grand piano. Yes. I have one. That's the thing with cool. 88 keys and it's big. Yeah. No. I mean, you could say as much or as little as you want it's in terms of mics. Yeah. I've got it. I've got it. Anything? I've got one right there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I got an old Steinway. It's great. Uh, you, the funny thing, though, like I have a drum kit, too, and. My drum kit sounds worse than samples. My Steinway sounds worse. It's really hard to make a Steinway sound as good as some of the samples. But the the crappiness is a, is what makes it our own, you know. Like, but it's really disappointing. Like I have tried to mic this freaking piano so many different ways, and it still never sounds as good as some of the samples. It's fine. I find that I love Steinways in the room. They just sound and. And anything about mm -hmm. them feeling great, I think, is just it's saying Steinway and you know yeah. it's a Steinway. <laughs> but then I find Yamaha pianos tend to mic better for some reason, even though they right. tend to be brighter. Well, we just bought, I bought another one for in the house because I got sick of being in here all the time. So I have a Yamaha upright in the house, which is like the one everyone learns to oh, play nice. piano on. But it's freaking awesome. I've been, yeah. I, I love playing that thing. Yeah, it doesn't have the low end, but it's just, yeah. I, I love playing it. Uh, and it's been fun. I play piano way more since we got a second one in the house. Like at dinner time, while we're cooking and stuff, I'll be taking out my classical book and uh, play some Chopin. Yeah, it's awesome. That's cool. Are you still studying piano too, or just no? I just have all my books and just stuff. trying to pick up an old piece and hack my way through it. It's fun. Anything with like five 
sharps or flats, I skip though. I'll go always go to something with a few with the easier signature because I just don't feel like figuring it out. <laughs> there, there's a yeah, there's a settee piece that I was gonna hack my way through, and I'm like, God, everything's a sharp and flat. Like literally everything. I forget what key was in, but it's like it's just that extra layer of thinking. So give right. me something with B flat, and it's great. Uh, last one I got here for Tech Talk is guitar amp. Wow, that's. This is a weird question for me because I have been preaching about using real amps forever until like two months ago. I used, I, I mean, I've had them all, but I use this little orange Tiny Terror, like seven watt head and I have a little Vox cabinet and I've used that for everything. But I got this pedal uh, from Strymon. Do you know Strymon? They make guitar pedals. Uh, yeah. So they have this thing called Iridium and it's just, it's- oh, yeah. IR, yeah, Iridium. Right? It's just like a guitar amp pedal, like a modeler. It's just, it's Fender, Vox, Marshall, no effects. It's literally like just amp uh, cabinet mod and amp. And it's just a pedal. It's not like, so it's it's literally three dials. You just, and it's awesome. And I, it sounds so good. So I've been using that exclusively, <laughs> sadly. It's amazing. What well, it saves oh, so much time? Yeah, but, it, but like, I always felt like you can get a good distorted tone on the modelers and stuff, but like they, they cover them all up in so many effects and everything. Like, I just want to hear just the basic, because when I used the Vox, I, I never used any effects. It was just sort of dirty, back off the volume a little and just get the crunchy, you know, annoying, I don't know, just the wood, just the movement of air that you get. I always yeah. found that that's what's lacking on the modelers was the, was the like semi-clean sound, you know? It's easy to get that sparkly clean, and it's easy to get the super distorted, but the in-between is where you can really feel the plasticness of the... Um, yeah. But this pedal, you can't. It's friggin', it's great. So it's, it's yeah, it's really good. Cool. Well, you killed it with Tech Talk. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I have got a bunch of TV shows. Uh, I've got uh, Young Sheldon, which is still going. I've got this show called LA's Finest, which is a spinoff of Bad Boys for Bruckheimer. And that's been fun. That's been, I'm just finishing the last episode today. Uh, I've got a show called Single Parents on ABC. Um, I got Kaminsky Method, I think, coming back. I've got AP Bio for NBC, which is now going to their new streaming thing. Um, I'm doing, uh, oh God, this is either cool or embarrassing. I'm not sure yet. Uh, they're doing a reboot of Saved by the Bell. That's, Ooh, uh, wow. but they're doing single cam. So it's, it's way different. Uh, so yeah, so I'm doing that. I don't know yet, man, but, but like, I didn't know I wasn't, a, I wasn't like a huge, I didn't know much about the original show, but apparently like people freaking love this show. Cause there's like. I, I don't know. Like they're they're banking on this thing being pretty big, so I don't know what I signed up for. So we'll see. Uh, so that's going. Um, and then I just I, this is a little drama movie that I'm about to start. And uh, well, Jeff, so you have a new album coming out. Can you tell us a bit about it? I do. I do. My first uh, solo album. I know that's. I, I always used to get angry when you'd see like Kiss put out solo albums and stuff because you just cringe when someone put out a solo album. But. Uh, yeah, I had some time and I just kind of wanted to do something that I like for once and something that you're not depending on picture to tell you what to do. And I, I honestly haven't done that in a while because you get so kind of wrapped up in the picture world to dictate what you're writing. 
uh, it was kind of fun to kind of just start from an idea with no picture. And uh, so I just really been talking about it for a while to do it. And, you know, some people are like, you should do a solo album, you should do a solo album. But it's like, who is clamoring to hear a solo album? You know, so that was my main concern. But so then I was like, I kept talking about it for so long and a few friends had done it. So I just sat down one day and I'm like, what would I do if it was a totally blank canvas? And, you know, so I started noodling on with some guitar loopers and stuff. And then just one idea came out and it felt pretty good. And I just I just wanted to limit myself to I didn't want to use any electronics. I didn't want to use any because uh, I'm a pretty organic kind of person for sound wise. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's enough guys who do the synth thing so well. So I just kind of limited it to a string quartet and uh, guitar. And I'm just like, what kind of music could I make with these limitations? You know, no percussion and no anything. And so I just kind of started messing around with loop textures. And that's so why I like, get a texture going and then kind of write string parts over it. And the first one turned out pretty cool. So I just decided to keep going and... Uh, it turned out pretty well, you know. I was happy. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the string textures and just um, the way each of the tracks kind of work against each other is really, really nice. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you know, I, I it's nice to be able. I'm kind of guilty sometimes of of trying to do much, too much like counterpoint writing and stuff, and and you know, and a lot of film stuff, simple works better, you know. And I'll always try to throw some moving inner lines sometimes. And sometimes directors are just like, that's too much or it's too classical or it's not, you know what I mean? And so I always have to rein myself in that way. So it was kind of cool to kind of just write stuff that had some weaving stuff going on. And uh, I also, I realized that I rarely go above middle C on the keyboard on strings. <laughs> so, so I decided to not use violins. Uh, so I, did, I just used two violas, uh, two celli and a bass. Wow. And uh, so just trying to keep it low. Uh, and it was cool. It worked out well. Because, I, you know, sometimes with solo strings, if you're, if, if you're not doubling things or if they're not playing unison or octaves, it kind of gets a little wonky. And, and uh, so I just tried to keep it low. And uh, it kind of worked out. It was cool. So I wrote it all with just samples. And then I, I just uh, did a string session. And um, turned out way better than I had hoped. And then I, I kind of finished... And I couldn't, kind of couldn't tell if it was good or terrible or for just a total waste of time. So I kind of just put it away for like a month. And then I listened to it again. I was like, it's pretty good. I, like I felt, I felt emotionally, like for me, uh, you know, some people, they like doing action or they like doing what I always, in every movie, it's always like the emotional cues that, that are my favorite to do. The, you know, and even back in when I started doing CSI Miami, like anytime there was a big emotional montage, I would always take those because that was just my that's what I like to do. You know, some people like to get tweaky with with synth, you know, programming and stuff. I just like to go for the heartstrings. So uh, it was cool to be able to do that with this on all of them, you know, and try it. So and the one thing I was proud of, I felt that it feels like an album, you know, it feels like a one piece you can press the start from the beginning and get to the end and feel like it's it's all in the same universe it's not like a bunch of independent pieces of music they all kind of felt cut from the same cloth which was kind of cool and there's a journey aspect to it too that i really enjoyed personally oh thanks yeah i mean i guess they all kind of have that (laughs) that journey (laughs) they start small and get you know big and build to the end but yeah i felt i felt good 
you know, I think it feel like it holds up. So it'll be interesting to see if anyone reacts or if anyone listens to it. Uh, right. Well, in terms of uh, you mentioned just writing to pictures, like there, there's a kind of like a guide map in terms of how you write, because the, the picture tells you the story and you just have to match it. Was there any type of imagery or any story that, that you wanted to say with this album? Yeah, well, it was all kind of based on this dystopian world we're living in. You know, everything was pretty bleak, you know, so I was just kind of feeling just like we were living in some, you know, world that they wrote about in fiction. And now it's actually becoming reality, you know, from like Brave New World or like just the world, like everything we in, in science fiction that we could have projected the future would be if it totally went horribly wrong. Seems like it actually is going horribly wrong now. So I kind of just had this dark vision uh, that kind of was rooted. And, and I guess that whole idea was kind of creating beauty out of darkness, you know, kind of, mm. kind of starting small, like seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, I kind of envision listening to this that you can see that as a world, we can overcome this crappy situation we're in now and uh, see a future out there somewhere that's better. Uh, so that was kind of impetus. And then I, I have a friend who's an artist in New York, this guy, Craig Collins. And so I kind of talked to him about it and played him some ideas. And so he uh, created a painting for the cover, kind of based on kind of what we talked about. And it was kind of cool. I'd never worked with a visual artist that way. And it was cool to kind of have him interpret what I was talking about, what the music was talking about in, into an image. And when he sent me the first one, I was like, that's that's right what I was, so it was cool. Kind of the way, you know, you might tell, a director might tell you something and you come back with a piece of music and they're like, that's exactly what I was thinking, you know? So it was cool to see that come back visually. And uh, so, yeah, so we use that as the cover and uh, that's that. For sure. Well, the album's called Nuovo Futuro. That's right. Go check it out. And uh, Jeff, thank you so much. Yeah, for being thanks for having me. Yeah, your show's been great. I love watching what you've been doing. We've got some oh, great no, thank people. Thank you. So, uh, right on. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Composer Talk. If you like what we're doing, feel free to follow us on Instagram or Facebook. The show is mixed and sounds great thanks to the incredible Eric Bard, who's also a talented composer, producer, and mixer. Until next time, this has been Matthew Wong.